We are indeed looking at, as is our tradition, we're looking at different psalms this summer. And uh, if you were here last Sunday, you know that we looked at Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is what uh, scholars call a pilgrimage psalm. Looking forward, as we uh, looked at that psalm, it was a, a pilgrim who was on his way and looking forward to reaching the temple where he would worship God there. Today, we are looking at Psalm 93. Psalm 93 is what scholars call a kingship psalm or an enthronement psalm. These psalms celebrate God as king, as the ultimate king. And actually, Psalm 93 kind of stands at the head of a bunch of psalms in a row that are kingship or enthronement psalms. Psalm 93 all the way to Psalm 100. So we're going to look at Psalm 93 as always. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along as I read. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, didn't bring one, uh, if you look in the seat in front of you underneath, you should find a Bible there. And if you look in that Bible, you'll find Psalm 93 on page 498. Hear now Psalm 93, the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Well, the psalm <coughs> begins by expressing God's name. The Bible refers to God in many different ways, using many different titles, many different names all throughout. Uh, for instance, in Genesis 1.1, uh, you'll see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, a different Hebrew word than is being used here. Whenever you find in Scripture the Lord, and specifically the Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know that in that expression there, uh, the, the writer is expressing God by writing his name. Uh, there's only one name given to God in Scripture. Technically, we don't know exactly how it's pronounced because in the Hebrew text, it's just four consonants put together. Uh, but our best guess is that it's pronounced Yahweh. Now, you may recall when Moses asked God what his name was. You remember when Moses uh, saw the burning bush and went to see what was going on, and the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from out of the bush, and they had a conversation there, 
And uh, Moses eventually said, look, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? You remember what God's response was. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, if they ask you what my name is, tell the people I am has sent you. Now, why did Moses even ask for a name? What, what was the point of that? Well, uh, probably because in Egypt, all of the gods had names. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and, and they knew all about Ra, and they knew all about Osiris. And so, if Moses shows up and says, look, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, he's going to rescue you, no doubt they're going to say, well, what's his name? And God responds, I am. The Hebrew verb, therefore, I am, is almost identical to the name Yahweh. So the psalmist is beginning here by speaking specifically of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And he makes a proclamation here. Yahweh, the God of our fathers, reigns. Another way to translate this, as some translations have it, is Yahweh is the king. Yahweh reigns, or Yahweh is the king. And that's the message of this psalm. It's, as I mentioned, the, the message of all of these enthronement psalms. And in one sense, that's the message of the entire Bible. The message of the entire Bible, in, in one sense, can be boiled down to the Lord God Almighty reigns. And interestingly, he proved that he reigned when he sent Moses into Egypt because by all of the signs that God did, he purposely chose the signs that he did in order to, in a sense, conquer all of the gods of Egypt, including, as you recall, the, the sun god Ra, the, the most powerful. He conquered him by turning darkness over the land and eclipsing the sun god. Now note here in the psalm that, that Yahweh's reign is not temporary. It's not as though God reigned for a while, uh, but that when things go bad in, in Israel, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, God reigned when he rescued us from the Egyptians, but now that the Babylonians have, have uh, breached our shores and they are uh, overturning our temple and they've uh, exiled us into Babylon, obviously God does not reign. No, it's not like that. The text doesn't say that, that Yahweh reigned at some point or that one day he will reign again. The, the text says that Yahweh reigns. He was king then and he's king now and he's king whenever anyone throughout all of history reads this psalm. It's always in the present tense. One Old Testament scholar says this, a perfect tense of fixed reality. He is king because he always has been and always will be king. And notice that his clothing matches his stature. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. Clothing in Scripture is very significant. Oftentimes the clothing that someone has goes along with 
the position that they have. It goes along, it signifies who the person is, what that person has been called to do. You might recall John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah, and so he was dressed just like Elijah was. You might recall the high priest. The high priest wore certain clothes and certain vestments and things so that he would be seen to be what God has called him to do, to represent the people before God. When people are in mourning, they take off their clothes and they put on sackcloth and they throw ashes on their head. Why? To demonstrate that they are in mourning. One of the most significant articles of clothing was the kingly clothing that the king would wear. God chose the king of Israel. He anointed him to be king. And you you might recall even when King David, well, prior to being king, he had been anointed to be the future king. When he was running from Saul and he found Saul relieving himself in a cave and he had the opportunity to kill him, he stopped short of killing him but cut a corner of Saul's robe. And later, David was deeply grieved that he had done even that because he had cut the corner of the robe of the Lord's anointed. And it cut David to the heart. Now here, the psalmist is pointing to Yahweh's clothing. And notice that he's not saying Yahweh's clothes look majestic. He says Yahweh is clothed in majesty itself. Another way you can translate that Hebrew word is glory or splendor. Yahweh is clothed in glory. Yahweh is clothed in splendor. Remember when God would reveal himself in the temple and the temple would essentially be completely lit up in God's glory. What It was called the Shekinah glory. Every time we see God in Scripture in the Old Testament, he is clothed like no other king. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Yahweh the king is clothed in pure majesty and nothing but majesty. Nothing but glory. And so the psalmist is amplifying the statement that Yahweh is the king by highlighting that he has royal robes unlike any other. But it's not just for show. You know, the the king of England probably dresses better than anyone in England as well, but really he has very little power. Yahweh is not all show and no power. He has put on strength as his belt. If Yahweh's clothing is pure glory, then his belt is pure strength. Yahweh is the king. And he demonstrates that he is king by sovereignly and all-powerfully ruling over all of creation. God rules over all of creation. Consider that. That means right now, God is king. He is king over every king, every prime minister, every president in all of human history. 
He reigns right now over the biggest tech firms in the world. Right now, God is reigning over Google and Apple and Microsoft and BlackRock and Vanguard and whatever else might present itself as the earthly king. God reigns over the climate. He reigns over all hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes. He reigns over the stock market and governments. He reigns over Hollywood and social media. He reigns over you. He reigns over your life. He reigns over your health. He reigns over your job and over your future. As R.C. Sproul liked to put it, there's not one maverick molecule in all the universe that escapes God's all-powerful reign. Christian, does your life demonstrate on a day-to-day basis that you truly believe that God reigns over everything? I know that challenged me this week. So often I, I mean, I can stand up here this morning and and preach, and I, I truly believe what I'm preaching. I believe that God's word is true. But as I go through the week, so often my life demonstrates that I turn away from that truth. I forget that truth. I forget that truth when I start to worry about the future. Why would I worry? I worry because I forget that God is reigning. I act as though God does not reign when I choose to sin. I proclaim that Jesus is my king that his law should reign over my life, and yet I find myself, when I want to, simply deciding that I reign rather than him. I forget that he reigns when I fail to consult him. How many decisions do I make in my life without first going to my king, without seeking his counsel and his word? Notice That in order to demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty over all of creation, the psalmist goes on to describe what, from a human perspective, seems like the most solid, most secure thing in all of creation. Look at what he says. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Established here means fixed, fixed, firmly set up, stable. As you think of stable things, you might think of the chair that you're sitting on. Hopefully, when you sat down, you trusted that that chair was stable enough to hold you up. You're trusting right now, all of us, that this floor is stable enough to hold us, that whoever, uh, you know, fixed up this barn for us. Uh, put enough under this floor to hold us all up. There are many things that we can think of in our lives that we trust to be firm and stable. But listen, is there anything that you can think of from a human perspective that's more stable and more long-lasting than the world itself? You know, when we went on our trip out west to Yellowstone and uh, to the Tetons and and, and all of that, you know, there were a lot of... uh, amazingly stable, majestic, powerful things that we saw in creation. And you know, when we would climb, when my 
family and I would, say, climb a, a, a big boulder or we would uh, climb up a mountain, there were a lot of things that, that I might have been concerned about. You know, I, I may have been concerned that we would run into a grizzly bear or, or maybe that one of us might slip and fall and, and break our arm or maybe we would, you know, get off the trail and get lost and not find our way back. There, there were lots of things that I could have been concerned about, but one of the things that never entered my mind was, is this mountain going to hold us? I don't know. I mean, maybe our collective weight is too much for this rock to hold. I mean, it would be preposterous. Now, notice here that that's what essentially the, the, the psalmist is saying. The world is established. It shall never be moved. The, the biggest skyscraper in the world can be smashed. But what is going to crack the world in half? But notice here that there is something more foundational. There is something more solid than even the earth itself. See, he says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. But your throne is established from of old. The psalmist is making an explicit comparison here. While the world is established, God's throne is established from of old. The translation here, from of old, it's an odd phrase. It can be translated something like, from a time before then. Or some translations have, your throne is established from the beginning which I prefer because when you read your throne is established from the beginning, it takes your mind back to the beginning. <clears throat> Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you start to think that this earth or something on this earth, some government or some entity, some king, whatever, is ultimate. The psalmist is telling you that before there was anything in all of creation, there was God. That everything in creation is dependent upon Him existing. That even the most solid, firm thing you can think of, the thing that was here long before you were here and the thing that will be here long after you're here, the earth itself was at one time non-existent. And before the earth existed, there was God. And there was God's throne. The earth had a beginning, but God did not. And the psalmist makes this explicit. So that there's no misunderstanding, the psalmist almost like clarifies what he means by from the beginning. It's not as though in the beginning, the earth was formed and God's throne was then formed. No, he says, the earth, as old as it is, is not from everlasting, but you are from everlasting. God alone is eternal. Think about that. I don't think we really can. We, we only know and can relate to space and time. Even to say that God is eternal, that it's almost like our only way of imagining that is to place God in time and say that he lasts forever in time. But God is outside of space and time. He created both. 
Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God is outside of time. It's one of the things that I am who I am means, perhaps the the main thing that I am who I am means. God is not I was who I was, or I have been who I have been, or I will be who I will be. God is I am. He alone is the eternal, everlasting one, and he alone reigns over everything. He reigns over everything, even what we might, in our finite human knowledge, call chaos. What might seem like chaos to us is not chaos to him. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. To the Israelite, the sea The sea was the picture of chaos. The sea was the picture of danger. The sea was the symbol of destruction. And you see here uh, this kind of repetition of the floods three times. And you can almost see the psalmist looking up and, and crying out as he sees this chaos arising and erupting in the world and, and perhaps in his life. Look at that, that phrase, the, the floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, the floods lifting up their roaring. That, that word there, it, it, it's like the crashing or the pounding, as some translations have it. The floods have lifted up their pounding. When you go to the ocean and you're laying out, you go to the beach on vacation, you're laying on the beach, it can seem quite peaceful. But every once in a while, the seas remind you of how violent they truly are. As some of you know, some of you though are are new and you didn't hear the story, but a few years ago, uh, my family and I went to Ocean City, uh, Ocean City, Maryland, And uh, I was doing what I have done since I was, I don't even know how old, 13 or something, maybe even earlier. I was riding the waves, body surfing. And uh, part of me was thinking, this probably isn't real wise at my age and with all of my responsibilities, but what could happen? You know, I've ridden a a million waves. I mean, what could happen? And I started riding one wave and out of nowhere, it, it just kind of went crazy. And, uh, and it slammed me head first into the impacted wet sand that didn't move. It was like hitting a brick wall. And uh, my neck completely bent uh, and my body just, my head hit and my body flipped over my neck and my head followed. And uh, I felt cracking and popping and everything else. I thought I was paralyzed. Uh, That's how hard I hit. And I ended up with a massive concussion that I dealt with for months. Um, But uh, as I stood up and was able to move my arms 
uh, and legs, I was just thanking God uh, that I wasn't paralyzed. And I was reminded uh, of two things. One, uh, of how powerful uh, the sea is, that, uh, that that one wave could throw me like I was nothing uh, into the sand. And, and secondly, I was reminded that I'm never doing that again. <laughs> that was the end of my body surfing, and I haven't done it since. Um, but uh, this here, the, this repetition of, of the floods, the floods, the floods, this is not a bad day. This is like the worst catastrophe you could think of. This is your life erupting into total chaos or the world erupting into total chaos. <coughs> One uh, scholar says, think of a small island being hit by a giant tsunami. The point is that from the perspective of the psalmist, as he sees these floodwaters rising, he can do nothing. All he can do is see it happening. I mean, there's no power in the psalmist. Oh, Lord, the floodwaters are rising and they're crashing. And isn't that true today? I mean, we read the psalm. It's, it's you know, sometimes you might read in the, in the Bible something that uh, they couldn't do then that we could do now. And so you might read something and say, okay, well, yeah, Goliath was surely imposing to David, but he wouldn't be imposing to me today if I had a bazooka with me. I mean, you know, it's just times change. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have to walk that far, you know, a, a, a many-day journey to get somewhere. I could hop in my car and get there, as I did in Israel when I visited it. So there are some things that you see that were hardships for them, but not for us. But not this. I mean, even with all of our technological advancements, what, what can we do when a massive Category 5 hurricane hits the coast? All we do is evacuate Right? They're, they're, and then go back to survey the wreckage that is left from the flood. Chaos can erupt in our lives at a moment's notice. Job, who we read about earlier, one day, in one day, Job went from being a man that had a beautiful family, property, homes, servants, and in one day, he lost it all. In one day like that, through a combination of the evil of men and natural disaster, he lost everything that he had except for his wife and his life. He even lost his health. And what could he have done to stop any of it? Nothing. There's nothing that he in his power could do. What was his response when he lost it all, his response was, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When confronted by the world's ultimate tsunami, Job, all he could do was to throw himself into the arms of the God who reigns. That's all he could do. We, I don't remember how many years ago it was now, but we had uh, kind of just uh, recently moved into the home we're in now, and uh, we had a pool. We still have it. Uh, but our son, James, um, went into the pool without his swimmies on, 
uh, unbeknownst to Michelle, who was skimming the pool. I was out front uh, mowing the lawn, and uh, I had not only the noise of the lawnmower, but also the noise of my uh, earbuds that were blasting music as loud as I could blast it so that I could hear the music over the lawnmower, and over all of that, I hear screaming behind me. And I turn around, and I see Michelle soaking wet, dripping wet, her clo- with fully clothed, carrying my son in her arms. He was gray from head to toe, and he was laying in her arms like this, with his eyes open, not moving. I knew immediately what had happened. I knew that all that what I could see, my son had drowned, that she was carrying to me a dead child. All I could do in that moment was to begin praying to the Lord. In a last ditch effort, even though I really thought he was gone, I pounded on his back a couple of times and water gushed out of his mouth and he started coughing and blinked and he was alive. Uh, But how quickly it seemed as though my world had been turned upside down by this tsunami, this chaos. Notice how the psalmist Although he's talking about this ultimate chaos that's rising, he matches the threefold statement about the floodwaters with a threefold statement of God's far superior power. Verse 4 mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And this is what we see, again, demonstrated time and again in the Old Testament as God demonstrates his mastery over nature, specifically his mastery over the sea. In the creation account itself, God speaks and the waters are gathered together. The oceans of the world are gathered into their assigned places when God speaks. Think of the power of that. In the flood account, when God is is the one who brings the flood, and God is the one who takes it away. The flood that wipes out all of humanity, that covers the highest mountains to the very tops, God causes it to subside by his power and his will. We see it again, as I said, in the, in the Exodus account when, when God caused the Red Sea to separate and pile up like giant walls on either side. Who has the power to do that? In the days of King Ahab when, when God promised through Elijah that he would cause a massive uh, drought that he would withhold the rain, that God even can control the water that is not there yet. (coughs) Throwing himself into the arms of God's sovereignty didn't mean Job was immediately at peace. The rest of the book of Job, he wrestles with the idea that God is sovereign over his life and over what happened. But at the very end of the book, when Job is wrestling with this, 
when Yahweh the king finally speaks to Job, what does he say to him? What is God's answer for what happened in Job's life? God's answer essentially is, Job, I reign, not you. I am the king of your life, not you. That's God's answer to Job. God says to Job, Job, who shut the sea in with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I prescribed limits for it when I set bars and doors, and I said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Whenever we do go to the beach and, and stay at that beach house, I, I like to get up every morning and watch the sunrise. And, uh, and, and that verse, every morning, it crosses my mind. When I'm standing safely on the shore and I've got the raging sea in front of me that could easily drown me, I think, but God said, thus far shall your proud waves be halted. In other words, it is the all-powerful sovereign God who can simply speak to the sea and the chaotic, unpredictable, powerful sea obeys his commands. Inanimate nature. In other words, when, when all seems to be chaos to you, you can look past the chaos and say, the Lord God reigns. Christian, are there some floodwaters in your life right now? Are there areas in your life that seem out of control? I'm sure there are. You know, you might not be able to call that wayward son or daughter back to the Lord, but never put that limitation on God. You and all your doctors might say that there is no hope for your incurable disease, but never put that limitation on God. God can heal your life, and he will heal your life in the life to come. You know, you might think that your depression and your anxiety is something that you can't do anything about, and you might be right, but don't put that limitation on God. You might not think that you can ever conquer that seemingly overpowering temptation and that sin that you constantly go back to, but don't put that limitation on God. Douglas Kelly says this, the majestic character of the King of kings and Lord of lords means that nothing can be more uplifting and beautiful than to know that he is in charge of all that can ever happen. Verse 5 it might seem to be a bit out of place given the rest of the psalm. It kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't really seem at first glance to fit. Verse 5 says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. All of a sudden, God, uh, the psalmist who's been focused on exclusively on, on God's power and him reigning over everything in the, on the earth suddenly starts introducing God's trustworthiness and his holiness. And we might say, well, as I did, why, why is he doing this? But consider for a moment what we know about people who have a lot of power. What do we typically find when we run into fallen human beings who are given power? 
What is the old adage? Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Just a scan through history will tell you that from a human perspective. So far, this psalm has gone out of its way to stress God's power. And we might say, well, what if God is all-powerful but not all-good? What if all he has is power? What if he's like everyone else that I know who has power? Because one thing that we all must come to grips with is if God is all-powerful and there is hardship and suffering in this world, why? Is it because God is not good? And the psalmist is telling us that it's the complete opposite of that. The psalm is telling us that the all-powerful king is also the one who is altogether trustworthy. That the all-powerful king, the one who rules your life, is altogether holy. Remember, uh, those of you who have read the Narnia books, you remember the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy and, and the other kids are talking to Mr. Beaver, and he's telling them about Aslan, and they don't know who Aslan is, and he's describing him, and he, and Susan says, who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. <laughs> safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. See, God is as trustworthy as he is powerful. And this means, as our confession of faith said earlier in the service, that we can have unspeakable comfort in the midst of chaos. It means that the storms of this life are not happening to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious, holy, and utterly trustworthy Heavenly Father. See, in this thought, our confession of faith says we can rest. Christian, when was the last time you rested in that thought? I mean, social media, just like you know, read articles and listen to podcasts, social media has created and ramped up the anxiety to another level. I was listening to a podcast just recently, and, and they said that, that the levels of people saying that they're super anxious and, and, and dealing with, with high anxiety uh, spiked incredibly when to, in 2007. And the guy on the podcast said that's when the iPhone was introduced. And I think part of the reason we deal with such anxiety and stress is because we're, we're bombarded with our smartphones uh, with 24-hour, 24-7 access to all the problems in the world. You never have a break from it. If you're on social media, that's all it ever is because everything is presented to you as the next great uh, catastrophe. 
the next great problem, right? This senator just said this thing, and now the world is going to fall apart. And that's the way everything is presented. Is it any reason why we're so stressed? Christian, aren't you so grateful that the God that we serve is both eternally powerful and eternally good? That he is reigning over everything that is going on in this world. And he demonstrated that when he came to earth. When he came to earth, he demonstrated his all-powerful and all-goodness. You know, for a long time, for his, most of his life, he was known simply as Jesus of Nazareth. But you know, one time, he was having a classic debate with the Pharisees, and they were mocking him. The debate had gone on a long time, and it reached a crescendo, and they started mocking him because Jesus had made the audacious claim that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And the Pharisees mocked him and said, you're, you're not even yet 50 years old, and you say that Abraham saw your day? Who are you to say that? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. You know, throughout history, there had been many men who proclaimed that they were God. Pharaoh said it. In Jesus' day, the Caesars proclaimed them to be God. But there's only one in history who demonstrated that he was God. Jesus, the king, showed himself that he was God by being once again master of the sea. Because when he and his disciples were on the Sea of Galilee, the worst storm that the disciples had ever experienced arose, and all the disciples could do was turn to him and say, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? These experienced fishermen could do nothing in the face of this storm. And Jesus, who was sleeping in the back of the boat, stood up, looked at the storm and the raging sea and commanded it and said, peace, be still. And just as he had done countless times in the Old Testament, so he did then. And the storm immediately obeyed his commands. Again and again, he demonstrated that he was the I am. And again and again, the disciples seemed to forget it. I often read the New Testament and I say, how could these guys forget? I mean, you see a man calm the wind and the waves with his voice and then next thing you know, you're forgetting who he is. And I think part of the reason they forgot is because when he came to earth, he cloaked himself in humanity. And when he did that, he turned aside and let go of the robes of majesty. When he came to earth, he veiled that majesty. Clothing is significant. It signifies who a person is, what that person's role is. And when Jesus came to earth, he traded in his robes of majesty for swaddling clothes. When he came to earth, he traded in his robes of majesty for a humble carpenter's cloak. He traded in his robes of majesty for a purple robe and a crown of thorns. He traded in his robes of majesty to be stripped ultimately naked, to have his last remaining garment gambled by those who tortured him as he hung 
ashamed in front of everyone on the cross. Why? Why would he do that? Because he was showing himself not only to be all-powerful, but also all-trustworthy. Jesus had promises to keep. His promise was to save his people from their sins, and in order to do that, he exchanged his kingly robes for the agony of the cross. John Calvin says this, Although in the cross there is nothing but curse, it was nevertheless swallowed up by the power of God in such a way that it has put on, as it were, a new nature. For there is no tribunal so magnificent no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as is the gallows on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, nay, has utterly trodden them under his feet. Brothers and sisters, Jesus reigns. There was a time when he traded in his kingly robes, but there will be a time when he returns again, this time clothed again in splendor. Robed in white, a white robe dipped in blood, his head crowned with many crowns, and on his thigh written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, he will display for all the world to see that Jesus was and is and always will be the God who reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the cross. We are so thankful that your son traded in his kingly robes to go to the cross for us, and we look forward to that day when he returns in white robes with many crowns on his head. We pray that you would help us to lean into that when the storms of this life swirl around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.